Rich Neeson, Catalyst. You'll understand later. DaleWileyShow.com. I'm talking to Rich Neeson, who I met yes. at Louis Rock and Roll Funeral. <laughs> yes. It is the <laughs> only time we actually physically met. That's correct. Yes, exactly. But you became a Facebook friend, and I just, you've just had such an interesting career. I just spent an hour listening to your old wonderful interview with, with the, or what is it, Roadie Free Radio. That was very the, ro- the Roadie Free Radio review, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was a fun one. That was a lot of fun. Night, so Bob, Night Bob and I, Night Bob and I cavorted around together doing that on a, on a semi-regular basis. <laughs> well, you know, I just, I just really am so interested in all of your stuff, and I just well, so you. enjoyed the Lou Whitney shout out at the, at the end. But let's start by talking about 1968. 1968. <laughs> <laughs> I was 17 years old. <laughs> yes, you were in college. In Athens, Ohio, is that right? Well, I, that was in the fall, yes. I, I graduated high school that spring, uh, right. and I started college in the fall. And uh, I, was already, I was already playing bass, and I put a, a, within, within the first few weeks, you know, got involved in, in, a, in a band uh, that was called uh, Tin Foil. Okay. And uh, in, uh, in early in, in November... Uh, we opened a show for the Grateful Dead at yeah. Veterans Memorial Auditorium in Columbus, Ohio, <laughs> and and were part of this sinister plot to effectively kidnap them and drag them back to Athens, Ohio. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> such a good story. Which, well, it actually worked. I mean, there was there were a couple, there were some professors who had relationships inside the Dead Camp. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't quite so uh, spur of the moment as as, as as I like to make it seem, but. <laughs> But it also anecdotally didn't hurt that we had better dope than they had. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. <laughs> and so you got the dead to um, to university, and then tell me about the other shows. I mean, you had so many interesting things, including we know, just, including. Just, um, well, sorry, I just want to mention the. Led Zeppelin opening for Jose Feliciano. Feliciano, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't actually know how that came about. I do believe they were kind of thrown on the bill because, you know, when, when I first got there, it was kind of a turning point in, in that part of the Midwest. You know, right. hippie, hippies hadn't really kind of made it to southern Ohio, uh, right. at least not out in the open. Um, yeah. And, you know, certainly a New York, a, a, a nice Jewish boy from the Bronx, you know, was, right. was an, un, <laughs> an, an un, unknown, I don't want to say unwelcome, was an unknown in, in, those, in those environments. <laughs> uh, so, uh, one of the, in fact, ironically, one of, the, one, of the first, one of the first weekends I was at college, you know, I, I wanted to have my normal Sunday breakfast that I had with my parents. You know, my dad and I would go out and play tennis. We'd come back, mom would have bagels and locks on the table. You know, and I went out searching for bagels in Ohio in the fall of 1968. <laughs> <laughs> you can guess the rest. Right. <laughs> you know? But I, I obviously quickly gravitated to the music scene locally and got involved in the campus entertainment con- you know, con- consort. Right. Um, and and they were a very active bunch, and 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 quite fortuitously, a very large number of those of us who were involved. In, in some way, shape, or form, on the on, on those boards in those years, stayed in the music business. 
myself, obviously. Uh, another guy went into facility management and ran the Veterans Memorial Auditorium in Columbus. Another guy right. went into radio and became a big guy up in Cleveland. Uh, another one became an agent, Andrew Waters, you know, who was, uh, was a booking agent uh, throughout the, 70s, the 70s, late 70s or 80s and 90s. Um, you know, so, so we actually had some seriously dedicated people involved. And it it, yeah. it 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 made for a really really powerful uh, uh, group. I mean, we you know the, the Led Zeppelin opening for Jose Feliciano. I, as far <laughs> as I know, that that was really the old board before us. Kind of had booked right. Jose Feliciano and his then tour opening act, Irwin C. Watson, who was <laughs> yeah. a ventriloquist comedian, you know, oh, and and somehow uh, Led Zepp needed a date on their tour and they got put on that show and it was in the round in the middle and, the, and um, they actually, you know, they actually drew quite a lot cause this was you know, spring of 69. The first album was already out. They were making some pretty serious waves and, right. and there were a lot of us in the, there who were Yardbirds fans who would, you know, really to us, it was at that point still right. the new Yardbirds. You know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, you know, all the stuff, done you also went to Woodstock so tell me about that experience well I that was another one where a lot of my friends were planning to go you know I mean if you put yourself into the mindset of people from that from the late 1969 the summer of 69 you know um, Altamont had not yet happened obviously right. but the <laughs> yeah. spirit of 67 was really alive you know from Monterey right. you know uh, festivals were were a, a dream idea and so there was a lot of momentum and a lot of energy directed towards you got to be there, you got to be there. Exactly. And to be honest, I really resisted it until that Friday morning. Really? Um, uh, yeah, I didn't buy tickets in advance. I was on the fence as to whether I wanted to go. And, you know, when I heard that this friend and that friend had already left to go up there, you know, it was about like one o'clock in the afternoon and I just sort of, Heck, I'm going, you know, and I walked out of my parents' apartment, took the train down to Port Authority here on Manhattan's west side, and right. found a line that stretched from, the, well, stretched all the way through the terminal just to buy tickets to get to, uh, to, get to the uh, festival area. And yeah. I bought my ticket, and I got on the line that went to the bus depot, which was four flights up, and the line snaked all the way down to the lobby. Right. So it was like... Six o'clock at night when I actually finally got on a bus wow. you know, on, that, for, on the first night. And, you know, it was a big party. We drove up there. Uh, we got within a few miles of the thing, and the bus driver just simply said, hey, this is as close as I'm going to get you because I can't get out of here. I'm stuck myself. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, in the dark, we just sort of followed the footsteps and the sound of people marching forward and walked until I remember walking over a fence that had been torn down, which at that time I didn't realize were the fences to the, the festival grounds. And um, for any of your listeners who are familiar with the, the Bethel Woods, I kind of parked myself up on a hillside um, to, to upstage right, kind of up on a hill, uh, and uh, just lay down there and listen to I heard, I heard Melanie and Arlo Guthrie and Joan Baez that first night. Wow. Um, 
you know, and uh, and then stayed through the weekend and uh, made myself a promise that no matter what I did, I wasn't going to take any drugs because I wanted to remember it all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good promise, definitely. Yeah, I'm not sure it was an effective one, but it <laughs> certainly was a good one. What was, your best, what was the best act at Woodstock? Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, it, it, it probably sounds cliche, but the most revelatory act for me was Sly and the Family Stone. Right. That's um, awesome. I had I had actually seen them one time before, very briefly. Uh, another odd anecdotal story from my high school years. A very close friend of mine, his mother owned a coffee shop on Seventh Avenue near Carnegie Hall, and the, the annual Jerry Lewis telethons were always held a couple of blocks down, at, I think at the, uh, with, I can't remember the name of the hotel, I think it was the Americana or something, I forget now, uh, right. at like 53rd Street and 7th Avenue or 52nd Street and 7th Avenue. Uh -huh. And their restaurant would be sending food over all through the night. So we were there. So he and I took a bunch of food over like 2.30 in the morning one of those nights, and we saw Gary Puckett in the Union Gap and Sly right. and the Family Stone. Wow. <laughs> <You know? laughs> As, and then, of course, because that's when they, could put, they would put these bands on. They didn't want them on in the daytime. It's too rebellious, you know. Right. When people yeah. wouldn't donate money to see Sly and the Family Stone at 3 in the afternoon, but at 4 in the wow. morning... <laughs> you know? Yeah, what a great They were still, yeah. It was, it was the original band, and they were amazingly good, even in that little five minutes, you know, that you get on the telethon. Um, so at Woodstock, I was really, really pi primed to see them, and certainly yeah. uh, they they left the most spectacular impression. Um, you know, ob obviously there are there is the breakouts of Santana and Joe Cocker. Right. Uh, yes. You know. Yeah. Uh, all legendary performances, and I and I watched them both. Right. Uh, but nothing hit me the way Sly did in that in that show. Well, and you know that's a good answer because I just I love that band, but seeing them at that point that would be amazing. <laughs> now Thank you, you also you also included a Bruce Springsteen gig. Tell me about that. Well, that was that's that's you know I, I alluded to the the group of people that we had on our concert board and how dedicated <laughs> yes. they were. Um, right. We the university had sanctioned an annual folk festival. You know right. we had we had a couple of campus venues on you know ballrooms and coffee shops and so you know Jonathan Edwards who had been a student there at Ohio University just about right. the, just before I had before come had his hit had yes. his hit with Sunshine. <laughs> You know, right, and so we had artists like that, and Dan Fogelberg, right. um, you know, early early Linda Ronstadt stuff, and yeah. in wow. and in the in this in the winter of seventy two seventy three when we started planning it, we made a very conscious decision to get a little bit more electric with it, and not just you know. David Bromberg and you know right. no, no no disrespect to any of these people they were great I artists and they were great people you know Doc, <laughs> Doc and, and Merle Watson you know yeah. I mean it, it, great stuff and I'm privileged to have been able to see all that stuff but we made a very conscious decision to quietly turn it into a rock festival right um, <laughs> and so we had the Eagles Crosby still Crosby and Nash you know Ronstadt was much bigger at that point you know bands right. like that uh, as 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 headliners for it. And about, I guess it would probably be maybe two to three days uh, before the the event itself. Uh, we and I, by me, by we, I don't mean myself. Received a call uh, saying that, hey, any is there any chance you could put this this guy on the show? Uh, wow. And that was Bruce Springsteen. 
And he said, well, the thing is completely booked. And he said, he doesn't need a whole lot of money, uh, but we need the date. And we were already fans of, of the album, the, the, the Asbury Park album. Yeah. Uh, so we, we said, look, the only thing we can do is put him on as the doors open. Okay. Which we did. And <laughs> it, you know, so as people were filing in, they were filing into Bruce Springsteen live on their stage with right. his original band, with David Sanchez, you know, on keyboards. You know, this is, I mean, before pre-E Street band Bruce. And, wow. you know, I mean, I was, I, I, I would not say that I was blown away. I'm a huge fan today. Right. Uh, that event did not make me that huge fan. Uh, but I was <laughs> deeply impressed by, uh, you know, at the time, I mean, it felt to me like he was out Van Morrisoning, out Van Morrisoning, Van Morrison. Right. <laughs> you know? uh, well, I mean, he had, he had a, a major stage presence and a great groove, right. uh, you know, even back then, you know, and, uh, and it was really fun to watch him at that point. Well, definitely. But then you got out of college and you went to work for Todd Rundgren. Yeah, I did. I what was, about Todd? Okay, well, to use a 21st century expression, I consider myself at that point in my life a Todd Rundgren fanboy. I was deeply enamored of everything he was doing from, yeah. you know, uh, from the Runt albums to something, anything, to coloring right. his hair, to, you know, right. to his, his adoration of Wolfman Jack, who I couldn't hear except when, when he became the host of Midnight Special. Oh, yeah. Um, and and as such, um, I paid attention to who his side musicians were and who was in the band and all that stuff. So when the album The Wizard of True Star came out, uh, you know, and I looked at who's on this album, and it's guys like Moogie Klingman, and I knew his name from uh, his work with Buzzy Linhart and co-writing the song Friends. And you know, it was just these were kind of I was I'm mean, an avid reader of Cream and Circus and Hit Parader yeah. and all those magazines and the early Crawdaddy magazine and all. So yeah. I was intimately familiar with who people were, even if I didn't know a whole heck of a lot about them. I knew their names. Um, right. Now, here, to, get into, to get to this fully, there's just a detour here. In the, in, the, in the summer of 1972, my brother, my older brother, was uh, producing concerts at, as a graduate student at SUNY Buffalo in New York, upstate right. New York. He also, being older than me, was friends with Lou Reed. Wow. And Lou, Lou had just put together... Um, an album, uh, you know, his first solo album with right. Richard Robinson producing and right. needed to get out on the road, but didn't have a booking agent, didn't have anything, and wanted to, you know, get some some dates together, and he asked my brother if he could come up and play in Buffalo, yeah. to which my brother immediately said yes. Yeah. Um, and he had, his first band was a bunch of 18-year-old kids from Yonkers who lived not far from where I had grown up, right? So I drove up from Athens, Ohio, to Buffalo because, I, I, of course, also a Velvet Underground fan and opportunity to see Lou. And I got together, got very friendly with the kids in his band, you know. Um, okay. And so fast forward to the, now the spring of, of, I guess this was 73, 1974. I uh -huh. guess it was, um, no, actually, no, it was in spring of 73. Uh -huh. And they were going to be playing on tour in Akron. The album Transformer had just had already come out, and so Lou was now becoming a much more well-known figure thanks yeah. to uh, Walk on the Wild Side. Yeah. Um, so I made plans to meet up with them in Akron, Ohio, uh, only to find when I got there uh, that they'd been fired three days before and replaced <laughs> by 
believe it or not, most of the musicians who had played on its Wizard of True Star, wow. <laughs> including Moogie, Moogie Klingman. Uh-huh. And so I spotted him in the hotel lobby and just introduced myself, you know, what I, what I have to lose, I just drove 180 miles to see people I don't, that aren't there. And Moogie being impressed that somebody would walk up to him in a hotel lobby and know who he was, <laughs> right. took me under his wing for the evening. It was, it was a transformational experience because it's what really made it clear to me that I had to do this for a living, no matter what else be, be, happened to me in life. I had to be on the road. I had to be in the touring end of the music business somehow. Um, I went with them to the show. I, they gave me great seats. I had backstage pass and all of that stuff. And I hated the show because these guys were great musicians, but they had absolutely no feel for lose music or for the Velvet Underground or anything. It was really playing it by the numbers. You know, the audience was happy and all that. Meanwhile, the show ends. Lou goes off stage, and the band members are all down in the front shaking hands with the audience going, 14th floor, Holiday Inn. 14th floor, Holiday Inn. <laughs> hey, come on back to the hotel, Holiday Inn, 14th floor. So right. we get back to our rooms, and the rooms are already blown open, and there's a party raging on that floor. And right. everything you can imagine from 1970s rock and roll parties, I got to experience <laughs> in that one night. So, of course, I stayed in touch with Moody from that point forward. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> And Moogie had a loft on 24th Street that Todd Rundgren had built a studio in that was called Secret Sound. I graduated college in June of 74, and quite coincidentally and unplanned, ran into both Moogie and Todd and Ralph Shuckett walking up Madison Avenue on their way to Central Park for something they were doing in that afternoon. So I tagged along, went back to the studio that afternoon, that evening with them, and didn't leave until tour with Hall & Oates at the end of the summer, (laughs) 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 who who ironically were opening for Lou Reed. (laughs) Really? Wow. It was on the Sally Can't Dance tour, and that was my first first (laughs) rock and roll tour, was working for Daryl and John as uh, as the opening act on Sally Can't Dance. (laughs) Wow. That is crazy. So I'm but, sorry, that was, a very, that was a very long-winded way to tell you that, yes, Todd no, Rundgren did give me my start in the business. That's a great way, but then, of course, you had a little tour called The Rolling Thunder Review. Yes, I did that, too. I, <laughs> I sent you that photo. Um, you again, you know, I'm, I'm, at this point, I'm back in New York. I'm out of school, um, you know, and, and having to kind of fend for myself. Well, I spent most of that summer of 1974 uh, living on, on Moogie's sofa, and staying in the studio, learning about moving equipment around. We did three records that summer. Uh, one, the first Todd Rundgren's Utopia album, uh, the first solo album by Felix Cavalieri of the Rascals, and right. Hall and Oates' War Babies album, which took me on wow. the road with them. So when I came back from that first tour, um, you know, I was kind of foundering. I didn't know quite what to do. How to, how to, you know, I wasn't staying working, continuing working with them, um, and. Uh, and, and uh, so I took off for a while, went down south uh, with a, a friend I'd met in college and who'd lived in Macon, and you know, so I went down there and played music with him for a couple of weeks and then right. came back to New York and uh, obviously needed to do something gainful. And I remembered that, um, I re- I remembered that there was a place that had given us, that we'd rented equipment from called Studio Instrument Rentals. Right. So I just walked in off the street. To their to their offices and asked if they had any, any jobs and I happened to be lucky and they did and uh, I, I passed my interview and I went to work for SIR as it's known um, right. 
as, as just, you know, humping equipment, moving amps around their rehearsal studios, delivering amps to recording studios, setting up drum kits, that sort of stuff. They were a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week business, and so someone was always on call. And right. I was uh, in, in, in the uh, early summer of 1975, I was... Uh, working with a band that was playing downtown um, and I had the SIR truck and I had to bring it back up to the, the studio after I was done. So I get up to the studio and I go upstairs to lock it, to, to formally shut the place down and lock it all up. And there was a message for me uh, that said I needed to pick somebody up at the airport uh, at 6 a.m. This was the flight. Two people coming in. I have, to, I have to take a van. I'll have some equipment with them and I should treat them like gold. Right. <laughs> you know, that, and that's all I knew. The two people happened to be, and I only remember the name of one of them. His name was Barry Imhoff, who okay. was Bill Graham's partner in FM Productions. Right. And I don't remember the other gentleman, uh, but it might have been someone like Lou Kemp or someone like that. But um, in any case, they flew in. That They got in that morning. I took their gear. I loaded it in the truck. I took them out to breakfast at my favorite coffee shop. I got them to the to their, where their office space was. I got them set up and loaded in. And I knew not, I had no idea what it was all about or what they what they were doing. I just knew I was supposed to take good care of them, right. which I did. Well, the next the next morning, which was a Monday morning, uh, they had a meeting at at, the, at at SIR with my bosses, um, which was actually to bring the Rolling Thunder review rehearsals to SIR and rent equipment from them. And one little sidebar to the whole thing was I had made a, a nice impression on them, and they wanted to make sure that I stayed involved so that I would be the only equipment person to deal with their needs uh, while they were there. Right. So uh, I got called into an office, introduced to them formally, and uh, told that uh, I couldn't talk to anybody about this, but I was going to be working <laughs> for them on a project with Bob Dylan. Yes. I'm 24 years old, and I really didn't know what I was doing in that business at that point in time. Exactly. And I was about to be, you know, put to work with some of the, you know, most major players and major uh, you know, colleagues of mine, you know, people who knew what they actually knew what they were doing in a rock and roll business. Yes. <laughs> so what well, I'm trying to say is I had no business being there, but I was there. Tell me about that, being that, because you actually were involved in, around some of the desire sessions too, right? Well, in the summer, in, in that same summer, he recorded most of the album Desire in two nights at Columbia Studios uh, on East 52nd Street, or I think that's where the studios were also. Um, in any case, uh, I had to deliver the equipment to them the first night and stay through the second. That first night included uh, some of the most incredible people I'd ever been around. Eric Clapton was at that session. Emmy Lou Harris was at that yeah. session. Uh, the members of the Grease Band, who now at that point had a band called Kokomo, were yeah. involved in that session. And obviously several of the people who became part of the Rolling Thunder Review, Rob Stoner, mm -hmm. Scarlett Rivera, uh, Howie Wyeth, the drummer. And, um, you know, and, and, uh, and I just basically was sitting there, you know, eating shrimp cocktail with Eric Clapton for a night. You know? Wow. <laughs> Listening to Bob Dylan. You know? Yeah. And I had, to go back, I had to go back the second night as well. Uh, which was not a hardship at all. Uh, you know? yeah. And um, so, you know, I mean, I was a fly on the wall more than I was a participant in it. If they needed something, they asked me to get it, and I got it. Right. Uh, but I wasn't, it wasn't like I was, had any functioning role within it. I, wasn't, I was just, right. you know, a worker, you know, a drone. Well, 
you know, I just am so impressed with all the stuff you get to do. But, you know, I also think that your story about um, breaking Bob Bob Dylan's guitar was interesting as well, or trying to switch. Oh, gosh, I, I talked I talked about knocking his guitar over. That, yeah. <laughs> that happened. That. Well, we did our rehearsals at SIR and then moved up to the Seacrest Motor Lodge or motel somewhere out on, in West Falmouth on Cape Cod. Uh-huh. Um, and it was myself, uh, a, a gentleman named Arthur Rosado, great guy, who was Bob's guitar tech. Uh, and right. another tech uh, who was working with me named Kevin Crossley, who eventually became Joan Baez's piano player on the tour. Uh, <laughs> <you know>? <laughs> <laughs> uh, in any case, we were the basic band crew, the three of us. And as I said a few minutes ago, I really didn't know what I was doing, and I was being thrown into a, 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 a job that required the highest level of skill and knowledge right. about a very exactly. young business. Right. Um, so simple things that are obvious to me 40 some odd years later uh, you know like don't run across the stage you know didn't mean anything to me at that point and so the band had just taken a break and there was something I needed on stage right and we weren't actually on a stage actually we were set up on a tennis court they'd taken the nets down and we put the tennis we put the, the show up around on this tennis court with no raised level we were just at floor level um but I had to run ran across this tennis court, and I slipped, and my left, my right foot caught the guitar cable that was plugged into Bob's brand new Telecaster, and it just did a face forward crush right onto the obviously a hard surface since it's a tennis court, right. <laughs> an indoor tennis court, and it broke the uh, a toggle switch, you know, <laughs> and. Uh, Fortunately for me, uh, the story continues because Arthur Rosado was very adept at fixing it and got it fixed before anybody came back for the night rehearsals and uh, saved my bacon big time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. Thank you, Arthur, for doing that. That Yeah, Art was was a prince among men. Still is. He's a really, really wonderful man. (laughs) Well, and of course, in all these things, I have to mention Joni Mitchell. Well, she joined the tour. Joni joined the tour not from the beginning. She came in half dozen shows in. I don't really even remember the first show she did. I'm sure there's people who can look it up and tell me uh, what the show she did first. But, um, you know, she was very shy. Uh, We didn't really interact a whole lot. But it was very – what was evident is the different personalities between her and, say, Joan Baez, who was just – Joan Baez was 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 one of the gang, you know. She right. just kid around with us. She could hang with us. Uh, right. She was she was as raw and rough edged as any other crew member <laughs> was, right. you know. Right. And yet she's Joan Baez, you know. Right. Exactly. Joni, on the other hand, was was sweet, shy, quiet, um, you know. And and and, and, and at that point, I mean, she was. Well, her, that, yeah. Oh, I mean, right. here's here's the thing. One of my big takes on the Scorsese film, people talk about the fictional stuff and how it's not really the Rolling Thunder story or the documentary right. that, you know. Um, I see all those fictional parts as plot devices, you know, right. things that moved the story forward but had more than just a grain of truth to what was going on. So right. to, to, to the reason 
reason I bring it up is because things like Sharon Stone dropping in on the tour, which didn't right. actually happen, yeah. But the very the parallel did. People came and went from that tour on a daily basis. You'd pick up somebody on the road, and a band member would bring them along from city to city, and then send them right. home and have the, you know. So that little bit of a party atmosphere was 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 rampant throughout the band entourage, uh, right. and the and the hangers on, um, and, uh, and 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 so. Uh, Sam Shepard, who was along on the tour for the purpose of writing the movie Ronaldo and Clara, right? You know, uh, was one such party goer who basically went after every woman he could find on the tour who would have him, <laughs> and that included Joni. So uh, and out of that came the song No Regrets, Coyote. Wow. Uh, and and you know. The first couple, the first night she performed it on the tour, I know it's shown in the film as her performing some of it. I think at Gordon Lightfoot's house right. in Canada, exactly. but she had she had already been playing the show, the song live nightly, and we noticed as a crew that the verses were changing nightly, and so we began to listen to it as a kind of a, a, a an open an open newsletter to all of us <laughs> as to what's going on on the other side of the fence. And and I remember uh, the tour monitor engineer, uh, whose name was Clem, and uh, Clem, lovely Scottish fellow. And Clem would go, and I can't do the Scottish accent. I won't even try. But he said, "There's no shortage of truth when Joni is around." You know. <laughs> and I think that's a, that's a pretty fair fair way to look at her whole career. There's no right. shortage of truth listening to Joni Mitchell. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, definitely, and you know, just that whole. Being around all these people is just so interesting. And then, of course, at some point you got back and you started. You've always worked with the dictators, and so tell me about being with them. Okay, well, not exactly always worked. I mean, we kind of grew up parallel lives. They're they're, you know Jewish boys from the Bronx, and as I said earlier, I am one. I'm I'm a member as well. (laughs) So we had a lot of commonality amongst us. But they had they had already um, they they had already fired their you know Stu Boy King the first the al- first album drummer uh, Richie Teeter had joined the band and Andy was moving to keyboards and they had gotten uh, a bass player uh, whose name is Cody Lee actually well, that's the name he goes by today it wasn't his given name but he's professionally known as Cody Lee he's a singer songwriter in the Midwest and he's great and wonderful um, but I digress. Um, <laughs> Cody didn't, you know, they were rehearsing at that point at SIR, at Studio Instrument Rentals, um, uh-huh. where I had been working. And I knew them, I mean, I was a fan of the first album. Again, you know, my rock and roll fandom plays into a lot of this all throughout. Oh, yeah. At any rate, um, you know, they they had uh, been rehearsing at, at, at Studio Instrument Rentals, and they were kind of like, you know, a joke to everybody there, you know, they were this right. sort of metal band, they were a bunch of kids, they were funny, you know, they were goofy, and they had this big fat guy named Handsome Dick Manitoba, so no one really <laughs> took them seriously, except right. for me. So I would go out of my way to do nice things for them, and to, and to make sure the studio was ready for them, to make sure the sound was up, the monitors were up, you know, and treat them professionally, like they deserved. Right. Uh, I did it not because I was a professional, but because I was a fan. 
Right. Um, and ultimately, you know, became friendly with him. I got, you know, obviously friendly with Scott first and Ross and then, you know, Richard, and then just little by little. So that um, as, as things developed, um, I began to, you know, they did a show. I began to go out as, as their roadie, uh, you know. Um, somewhere along that way, uh, Sandy Perlman, who managed Blue Oyster Cult as well, uh, yeah. uh, approached me because the Donald Rose, Buck Donald's guitar tech had right. uh, been in a car wreck and was very badly hurt, and they needed somebody to sub for him while he convalesced. Right. Uh, and so they asked if I would do that, and I said, of course. And that's when I left SIR, um, and at that point, the dictators, but I stayed with him, became a part of the family, the business family. And uh, I went on the road in uh, the spring of 76 with Blue Oyster Cult on the tour that had Agents of Fortune and Don't Fear the Reaper. And that's, that's when I learned life's great lesson that it's really, if you're going to tour, it's better to tour with a hit record than not to tour with a hit record. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but no. so, so I, I, I did that. And then at the end of the year, uh, I was doing a show with the dictators at CBGB's, and, and, and Sandy came up to me and goes, well, thanks for your time with BOC, but Ricky's coming back in, you know, in the next leg, so uh, we want you to stick with the dictators. And I said, right. well, that's fine. I'm, I'd, I'd be happy to do it, but I want something in return. You know? And he said, what's that? He said, I want to mix, I want to mix sound. I want to be the front of house engineer. Right. Uh, and Sandy agreed to it, which I'm very grateful for because I didn't know the first thing about mixing sound at that point in time. I just right. knew it was something I wanted to do. <laughs> so I became the dictator's sound man as as well as their crew from that point through the end of, of uh, their touring you know, career. More with Rich after a break. DaleWileyShow.com Do you love music? Do you know about the musical map of Missouri? Dallas Wayne, Chuck Berry, Dave Alvin, Robbie Folks, The Skeletons, The Ozark Mountain Daredevils, Uncle Tupelo, Wayne Carson, Nellie, Lou Whitney, Symptoms Morales, City, Jeff City, St. Louis, St. Joe, Columbia, Buckle of the Bible Belt, the Studio on South Avenue in Springfield, 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 Missouri. Add the Missouri Music Podcast to your list of favorites. Lawyer, author, and Slewfoot Records label owner Dale Wiley takes you on a musical trip around Missouri while raising funds for Musical Map of Missouri, a nonprofit organization which will help ensure Missouri musicians affected by COVID-19. Visit MissouriMusicPodcast.com for more information. Tune in to the Missouri Music Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Way more from Rich Deason, DaleWileyShow.com. Well, yeah. and I'm just such, I'm just so big a fan of what Scott Kipner does. And so tell me about him. Well, I mean, Scott, Scott is one of my dearest and closest friends, and I talk right. to him regularly. And, uh, you know, throughout the dictator stuff, you know, um, you know, it, well, the, the dictator was a family of, of the highest order. Dysfunctional right. though it may be, but we all—I mean, it, it was—it was no joke that we adopted the Hell's Angels, Angels Forever, Forever Angels as a motto. Right. DFFD was was really, really, really uh, something that we took to heart. Right. You know, uh, it was a complete—you know—three Musketeers, all for one, one for all—you know—vibe, and and all, I think all of us, you know. 
to a to a man would agree that we had the most fun in those years doing really seriously stupid stuff and dangerous <laughs> stuff. You know? <laughs> you know? uh, but in the you know in 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 the breakup of the band, you know, Scott was foundering for a while, starting to write songs. He had written a song called Sixteen Forever that they had recorded. He had uh, co-written. Um, Oh God! What's one of the songs on uh, on Blood Brothers? I can't remember which one off the top of my head. With Andy, you know, so he was learning how to write songs as it went, and uh, at that point started playing in uh, in the backup band for a woman named Helen Wheels. Uh, And Helen had been a lyricist who'd written lyrics for Blue Oyster Cult, and again was part of that whole scene. And she had a, a really, really alive and vibrant approach to early punk rock and rock and roll and really, uh, you know, was a wonderful, wonderful person, gone way too long and way too soon. Um, but uh, Scott started playing behind her, and her bass player at the time was Manny Coyote. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, Scott and Manny decided to form a band, uh, and then came Eric and eventually <laughs> Frank, and the Del, Lords, the Del Lords were born. Right. But before that, you went on tour with Steve Forbert. So tell me about him. <laughs> well, um, okay, yeah, that's true. Between the breakup of the between the breakup of the dictators and the right. start of the Dell Lords, I was I was not always hanging out with Scott Kempner. That's true. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when the dictators actually broke up, uh, I had a girlfriend whose name is Camilla Saley, and a. a, a I'm, I'm very effusive with my praise of old friends, but she was really a delightful person, and, and we are still friendly today. Um, at any rate, she was working as an assistant in a management company called Coconut Entertainment. Uh, it was the management company run by Danny Fields and his partner, Linda Stein, yeah. and they were managing the Ramones. It's interesting, too. I mean, plenty interesting, definitely. Oh, yeah. So... Um, <laughs> I went, I, I went to Camilla and goes, look, the dictators are falling apart. Richie's left the band. They got this other drummer for a while. We did some shows. It just it wasn't the same thing. It was, it was you know, it, it was just crumbling. Right. Um, and and uh, so I said, tell Danny and Linda I want to come work for the Ramones, you know. And uh, <laughs> Linda, Linda called me and said, I wouldn't wish the Ramones on my worst enemy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that answer. You know, but but you know she had this new young artist that they had just signed who's got his first record coming out, and would I consider working for him? And that was that was Steve Forbert. Yes, and he was uh, big and at the time. He was big. At he the time. was unknown. I mean, Alive on Arrival had not come out yet. Okay. At All that right. point, so. I, I, I said to them, you know, well, I'll, let me I'll, let me think about it. And she said, I'll send Camilla home with the record. You listen to it, you know. So I, they sent an advance copy, um, and I listened, and I went, holy cow. <laughs> right. <laughs> this guy's really good. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, so on December, I think it was like the 1st of December, 1978, uh, we did our first show with the band that made uh, that first album. Uh, Steve Berg had produced it, uh, and uh, Robbie Condor played keyboards on it, all these these session players, basically. And that band uh, got together to play a show for him, with him, at uh, a place called Rick's American Cafe, somewhere 
near the George Washington Bridge. Somewhere, I don't know if it was in Fort Lee. I don't know where the place was. I just remember it. Um, and, you know, that was, it, that was a big label showcase gig. It was a real important thing. And it was one of my best mixes ever, I think, frankly, as a sound man. I felt really, really good about it. Everybody felt good about it. And then from that point, we were off and running. We got asked to do uh, the CBS Records convention, which was in January uh, of, of, that, of, of that point. Um, and, uh, and we did and had a whole tour booked, and, and off we went. Uh, we finished the tour for that first album, and Steve was going to go make another record, uh, and he had uh, John Simon producing it, and they wanted to do it down in Nashville. Wow. So I, that, I did all the coordination on, uh, for him on that and uh, it helped get everybody down there, but I stayed in New York, uh, you know, working in the office, helping to plan the next phase of touring when the record was right. done. Now, while he's making the record, he has a couple of musicians on that record. Bob Ogden was playing some keyboards, uh, Bill Jones was playing saxophone on some songs, and I believe there's, I believe there was another from, but all of them had a connection to Springfield, Missouri. Wow. And Steve was told by both Bobby Ogden and by by Bill that if he needs a band, there are these guys in Springfield who yeah. would just be great. They wow. were called the Skeletons. Yes, they were. <laughs> They were indeed. <laughs> they, had just, they had just finished being the symptoms, so they were definitely the skeletons. <laughs> they changed things like everybody changes their, their underwear. I mean, they changed a lot of things. <laughs> I'm sorry, you, you broke up just there. I didn't quite hear what you were well, saying. They changed a lot of names, definitely. Oh, yes, they did. They definitely did. <laughs> but um, So at, at Steve's request, I flew out to Springfield, Missouri, and set up a meeting at Column One Studios, if you remember that one. Yes, sure you know, do. The recording capital of Greene County. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and uh, met with Lou and explained what we, what we had. They were doing a show uh, at the Amador Mining Company. Right. You know, so I went to see them. Right. And I, rem- I remember I, I, get, I, I was staying at the Lamplighter. Not a, everybody talks about the Railhaven. I stayed at the Lamplighter. My bad. In any case, you know, I called up Steve in Nashville. I go, you've got to come and see this. Really? <laughs> you know? wow. I, bottom line, I mean, between, between the humor, the caliber, and Lloyd's drumming and Donnie's playing, uh, no disrespect to Lou, but he wasn't—he wasn't the calling card, you know. Right. At that point, right? Um, I insisted that this is—this is—he's got to do this. And so Steve came up and saw them as well a couple of weeks later, and, and we were off and running. That began my friendship with Lou and Donnie and Lloyd, and uh, wow. and in those in those days, Nick Sibley was actually a part of the band, yes. you know, in, in that early part. It was before right. Kelly and Joe were in there. Um, you know, and uh, uh, in any case, uh, I don't know. That that's, that starts that starts something in motion that really, really uh, is fresh in my mind right now because I just watched Dave Hoekstra's film last night for the first yeah. time. Absolutely. And uh, you know, I, I mean, half the people in that movie know of Springfield because of me. Absolutely. Because that's really that that really yeah. started something. None of Dave Alvin, Andy Chernoff, Eric Amble, yeah. Scott. You know, uh-huh. um, you know, 
so many of those people, Jojo, Jonathan, you know, all, all because of our relationship with, with my relationship with them and, and, and with Steve. Um, and uh, we, it was, it wasn't the entire band. Nick didn't want to go. Right. So, it, so we had Steve, Steve had a keyboard player named Paul Erico who had been in the first band on the first record, and Steve and he had really hit it off. He's a great keyboard player, good background vocalist, played a mean accordion, just a cool guy all around. Right. So we had Paul for keyboard, so we didn't really need Nick. But we took right. Donnie and Lou and Lloyd and Bill Jones. You know, um, And that became the band that toured behind the, the Jackrabbit Slim record. Right. You know, and... Uh, um, then, you know, Donnie was the first one to leave it all because, well, he, he, how, how does one explain the whims of Donnie Thompson? You know, Donnie doesn't, da, Donnie doesn't dance with anybody's, at anybody's request. Donnie doesn't move to somebody else's beat. You know, uh, I, mean, I mean, the handful of times I've been out in Springfield the last several years, you know, it's been my fervent desire to see Donnie, and somehow it always happens, but not because of anything I've been able to do. <laughs> you know? You're totally right. You're totally right. You know, um, so it was really a delight to be, be to become a part of that family too. Uh, right. And you know, when when uh, when after shortly after Donnie left, you know, S Steve fired Lou uh, primarily because uh, he. I mean. I'm not, I'm not divulging state secrets here. Steve Forbert at that point in his life was an alcoholic. Um, we had a nickname for him. It was called Buttons. You know, so Steve would wake up in the morning and Buttons would pass out every night. Oh, and wow. uh, and uh, Lou, you know, has, ha, Lou had the, this wonderful sense of humor, but there was always a little cutting edge to it if he wanted there to be. You know, so Lou, you know, Lou could say a, a cliched line like, you know, hey, hey Steve, don't want your meatloaf, you know, <laughs> and, and and all of a sudden it would take on a certain different meaning to it. You know? right. <laughs> you know? They wrote a song. I mean, he wrote a song about Lou, and I and just... that, that's where I was. That's where I was going. Yes. That was maybe one of the most cruel things I've I've watched actually, because we rehearsed that song on stage in sound checks for weeks before the, before the end of that tour uh, right. and never performed it live and uh -huh. while doing it Steve would never sing an entire verse he would sing a lyric here or there and always always mumbled through laughter Lou so that <laughs> Lou at that point in time never knew the song was written about him wow you know none of us did it wasn't until you know Lloyd and I and and the the next phase of Steve's band, we're in the studio with Pete Solly making the little Stevie Orbit record. Right. That we realized that Laughter Lou was that song that we'd been rehearsing. <laughs> and I think it was Steve's passive aggressive way of just getting under Lou's skin if he could. Right. <laughs> Which he, he couldn't. <laughs> exactly. You couldn't do that because he was just such a, a crazy character and so. That's one of the things that I really wanted to have you on, is just to, to mention Lou in the same breath as these other characters of rock and roll. Yeah. That important. Yeah, no, Lou, Lou, 
Lou is a, a major figure in the lives of every single person who really crossed paths with him. Yes, you know, it was it's inescapable, and and that's one of the things that really is clear in Huckstra's movie. You know that that um, that his impact on things was enormous. You know whether it be uh, the kids the kids in. Uh, Somebody, somebody loves you, Boris Yeltsin. I love that name. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, uh, or uh, or the, the guys in Fool's Face, another Springfield band that didn't get right. m- mentioned in the film. <laughs> right. You know, yes. or just the people around town, Annette Weatherman, and and of course, you know, um, you know, you know, Patty Hicks, Patty, you know, Patty Perkins Lloyd's wife. Oh, you know, yeah. all, all, right. all 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 those people. Uh, Really, you know, really influenced by him, uh, whether they whether they wished to be or not, whether you know, like me, they were <laughs> acolytes and wanted and hung on his words, and you know, right. wanted to. But but meanwhile, you know, as Lou kept developing new projects and, and things to do, you know, I would be in New York, and they'd say, hey, he'd call me up, hey Richie, you know, we're, we're going to come to New York in a couple minutes. <laughs> Can you help us get some work, some gigs, you know, <laughs> you know, um, you know, and and. Uh, and certainly I did, and we had, you know, the, you know, at that point it became the Morels and Lou and right. his, his, I think it was, I think, wasn't, you can correct me here, wasn't Marilee actually his second wife? No, I believe. Oh, she was his first. I wasn't, I couldn't remember whether he'd been married as a young boy, young man, even right. early on, but I, in any case, well, he and Marilee and Rongo and Donnie, you know, would come in as the Morels, you know, and, uh. And it was in that incarnation that I began to introduce them. Because part of the thing that attracted them to me wasn't just that I was actually good at what I do as a professionally, but that I had worked for the dictators. Yes, that was that was important to them. I yes. knew Handsome Dick Manitoba, and I knew Top Ten, and Adney <laughs> Chernoff, and all. You know, <laughs> you know? yes, you know, so. So there was a lot of mutual respect and admiration that was going back and forth, but I certainly made sure when I brought them to New York that I introduced them to all these people. Um, and I remember, I remember passing a cassette on to Lou at the request of this young skinny kid. I come up from Philadelphia, and I just want to give him this cassette. It was Ben Vaughn, you know. <laughs> you know, it's like so. I mean, great. Great stuff happened as a result of that, and wonderful memories, you know. Right. And uh, you know, but I, I feel very honored and proud that I set a lot of things in motion that be, that bore fruit through the years. I mean, you know, in, 80, in 1983, when the Dell Lords were just being, you know, start getting started and wanted to record some th- some some high quality demos, we drove out to Springfield. Right. <laughs> you know, did those first demos out there with Lou, and you know. Um, uh, you know, a decade later, when I was managing Scott, and he were making the Tenement Angels album, it was right. it was just the most obvious thing in the world to yeah. to, send, to send Scott out to Springfield, and, and record with Donnie and Lou, and you know, and uh, as Scott would say, those guys were genetically engineered to kick the ever-loving shit out of rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right, and you know, I just think that that's why. It's so important just for people to know, like how genuine and big Lou was. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, I, I mean, uh, there's certainly no shortage of homage paid to him in the film, but right. it's really one of one of life's cruel ironies that you know now six years after he's gone, um, he you know he he still doesn't really get the the. the 
right. or anything that they, these guys did. I mean, you know, in the film, Lou talks about how well I just I just wanted us to be competent. I wanted us to be good. I wanted us to work at being getting better, and and uh, that's what he wanted for everybody. <laughs> you know? right, exactly. And he, you know, whenever he was around, you know, he you were the most per you were the most important person in the world. You know, he trusted yeah. you alone. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And, and you know, on, on, on that more serious note, it's it, it's absolutely true that you know when when the words of wisdom that made you laugh, oh yeah, were the same yeah. words of wisdom that would make you think. Right. And so it wasn't any joke when you know it wasn't really any joke when Lou would spit something out and follow it with, think about it. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> you know? Yes. Yeah, no, well, I, I I loved them all dearly, and then eventually I came to manage the band itself and got them to deal with Alias Records that made this the waiting album. Right. And uh, you know those are, those are really wonderful points. And at, at at that point, I was living in California. I had moved out there after a tour I had done in 1990, mm-hmm. and uh, was working for a small management company run by Shelley Heber and Leanne Myers called uh, Vision Management, and mm-hmm. One of their clients was Dave Alvin. Um, Shelley had managed Dave since the Blasters days at that right. point. And, uh, in fact, her personal assistant, Shelley's assistant, uh, Nancy Sefton, still manages Dave. So there's continuity in that. Uh-huh. But David had been signed to um, a small label, High Tone, right. and uh, had made an album called Blue Boulevard right. and didn't have a band and wasn't able to tour and I had, you know, the skeletons, my little stable of clients was the skeletons and Scott Kempner. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one doesn't get a more built-in band if you try. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so I, I suggested to Shelley, you know, that I needed to get Scott's to play some gigs. The skeletons need to be able to afford to tour. Right. And Dave needs a band. So why don't we put all three of them together in kind of a review and... You know the skeletons can open the show. Scott, you know they can back Scott. They can back Dave, and and boom, you got a you got a, a, a tour right there. We just have to right. find dates and book it. And and we we did. And um, to this day, I'm very proud to say that Dave Dave Alvin gives me credit for jumpstarting his touring career and making it possible wow. for him to make a living on the road. That's so fun. And you know that's the thing. I just love all the interconnectedness. It's so interesting. Me you know. too. I think I think I think one of the words I would love is, as part of my epitaph is the word catalyst. You know? <laughs> yes. Um, you know, the, the, I'd be lying if I just said there isn't a part of me that wishes I had more recognition for the things that I have done in my life. Right. Yes. Uh, but I but I take absolute solace and a very very deep pride in the people I've connected who have gone off and done great things. As, as on their own in, or in tandem with each other. Uh, right. Another great example of that was putting Scott Kempner together uh, with Dion DiMucci. Right. You know, after – well, I, I, before I moved to California, I had done a tour that was uh, – for, for the company I had been working with here in the, in the East, um, tour managing Dave Edmonds in what was called the Dave Edmonds Rock and Roll Review. He had just put out his first album for Capitol Records 
maybe maybe the only record he did for Capitol Records <laughs> called Closer to the Flame. Right. And um, he, want, he you know, they wanted to put together a, 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 a tour. So, um, well, basically, I was working for John Sher, and he what he did is he put together Dave Edmonds, Graham Parker, Dion DiMucci, and Kim Wilson of the Fabulous Thunderbirds. Right. And built an all-star backing band around them with Terry Williams from from uh, Rockpile and later Dire Straits um, right. on drums, uh, Dave uh, Dave's piano player Gavin Povey on piano, uh, uh, the Miami Horns, you know uh, La Bamba and Alan Chez and uh, Eddie Mannion uh, and Mario Cruz on horns. That's the the same guys who did the Springsteen Tunnel of Love tour. Um, that Phil Chen from Rod Stewart's band on bass, uh, Steve Cropper on on oh, wow. uh, principal guitar. Uh, I mean, it was just it was one heck of a band. Right. And, and 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 much like the tour I did with the Skeletons and Dave a few years later, um, you know, it was a review. The show would start. Dave Dave Edmonds would come out, do a couple of songs. He would bring out Graham, a uh, uh, Kim Wilson who would do like a 25, 30 minute set, who would then bring out. Uh, you know Graham, who would do a set, uh, you know of of, of his current stuff because he had a, he had an album out at that time as well, um, and Dion, of course, who had Yo Frankie, you know, right. would come out and and they would all share the stage with each other and all all of that, um, and and so from that I, I built friendships with Dion and with Crop uh, that I maintain to this day, wow. and while we were on tour, I, I said, you know. Dion, we're Bronx boys. I got one for you. <laughs> and I gave him, I gave him, you know, all, all the stuff that Scott had been working on, right. you know, at that point in time. Just like a bunch of cassettes, demos and stuff, songs, and uh, Del Lord's stuff. And he thanked me and he took him and put him, I guess, in his glove compartment in his car when he got home. <laughs> and as he tells the story a couple of years later, He's cleaning out the car, and he comes upon these cassettes, and he has no idea where he got them or how he got them. <laughs> but he says, oh, my God, well, let me hear this. What well, pops it in? And he, it's Scott, of course, and he falls in love with the stuff, and he right. looks him up, and he calls him in the city. And it's like Scott, you know, in typical fashion, is like, yo, Scott, this is Dion. Right. Dion who? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, my God. You know, you know, Dion. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, <laughs> but it was, and and they began writing songs together and working together, and that's a relationship that again continues to this day. Yeah, and I had my fingers in it. You know, well, so it's, you know, it's well, nice stuff. Just making sure that you know that you also you also kicked COVID. Is that right? <laughs> I was an early adopter. Okay. Um, I, I I I came off the road in uh, the end of February, and on March 12th I started of this year. Obviously, I, I started to have a light cough and you know tickling throat kind of thing, and by the next day I had a little fever to go with it. Um, and you know, it I didn't occur to me. In fact, more than it didn't occur to me, I actively said I don't have I don't have this virus, whatever it is, you know. Um, but I was wrong. Uh, I, I got turned down. I mean, it was it was a tough time. I got turned down four different times by the state of New York for getting for testing right. uh, because at the time, you know, tests were precious and rare, and I yeah. didn't have 
I didn't have most of what they considered to be the major symptoms of the coronavirus right. at that point in time. Uh -huh. I wasn't really having breathing issues. I had a cough, yeah, but I wasn't. I didn't have a high spiky fever. My fever never got really above a hundred or till much later on. Uh, you know, so they're going. You, you know, you're, you'll be fine. <laughs> you <Right. know>? but, <laughs> but ten days later, I had lost twenty pounds, and I had uh, I could barely get out of bed. And wow. my wife and I agreed that she would take me to the hospital that day. And um, I was having abdominal pain, uh, which turned out to be an, a, a, an outbreak of diverticulitis. Wow. And without having tested me, the hospital admitted me for the diverticulitis um, and then tested me and found out that I had, had the coronavirus as well. Wow. But I've been very clear to people that if it had not been for the diverticulitis, they would have sent me home. And if they had sent me home, I wouldn't be here now. Wow. Uh, because I was getting sicker by the minute, number one. Number two, I had pneumonia in both quadrants of both lungs. So I had double pneumonia, even though I had no symptoms of it that you could tell, you know, automatically. My, my, my oxygen levels never dipped below like 85 or so, you know, and um, in any case, it's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it, it, I was very fortunate. Um, I have a some very minor long-term symptoms. My heart rate continues to this day to be considerably higher than it's supposed to be. Right. Uh, but the, uh, my heartbeat is usually now at the top end of the normal range, but I've seen, you know, cardiologists, pulmonologists, endocrinologists, and my health is very good. So whatever is happening, you know, within me is not of major concern to them, and I take that... Uh, very seriously, <laughs> and 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 actually, you know, I, I, as long as we're talking about the virus, I I, I want to say something, and I hope I'm not. I, I hope this doesn't upset any anybody no, in the process. No. Please do uh, it. No, but but, but a, a very dear friend of mine and somebody we've spoken about in this last hour, uh, right now is fighting for his life down in Texas, and that's Manny Coyote from the Del oh, Lords. Yeah. Right. Um, you know he he was diagnosed as positive a week ago Saturday, had no, had, had very few symptoms throughout last week uh, right. until like Friday morning when he started to have breathing problems. And he's basically crashed since then. When they got him into the hospital Friday night, his oxygen levels were down to 30%. He's battling wow. kidney issues now. Uh, he's on a ventilator as we speak. Um, his, you know, he's in bad shape and I'm hoping and hoping and hoping that he pulls through. Right. But uh, it's no joke. <laughs> you know, I can say it from personal experience, and I can say it as somebody who's, you know, worried about a friend they love. Right. And, you know, that's a part of why we're doing what we're doing, to try to help physicians through this time in Missouri and hopefully other places too. But we're trying to help the physicians and all that we can do, and that's why we've started the Musical Map of Missouri and all these things that I just, I'm so much happy to have you on and talk about and continue to reach out to you and see what's going on with you. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm personally, I'm a very lucky person. Um, I credit my wife and my family for taking great care of me. Right. Uh, the hospital I was in for, you know, letting me be there. And the irony of this is not lost on me, but... I went. I, I turned 69 in the hospital. Right. Right. Uh, that was the first time since the day I was born that I was uh, spent a night in a hospital. Right. 
You know, so I'm still at, at, at almost 70 years old. I'm still all original equipment. I got my consoles. I got my <laughs> appendix, <laughs> appendix. I got my adenoids. My, you know. yeah. <laughs> I'm all original equipment except for a couple of teeth. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is very good. Very good. To so I'm I'm very very grateful for all of that. <laughs> well, and I just enjoyed having you so much on the podcast. But thank you for coming on. Any any time, man, Dale. I, 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 it's really funny because we've been we've been very good friends on Facebook, and right. I, un, until I saw you in the film yesterday, right. I went, oh, that's who. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's funny. But yeah, that is funny because I love that film and I love what Dave's doing, and I just yeah. think that you're being a part of this. Is so important. I, was, you know, I, I have to. I have to admit that when I was at, at out there for Lose Euphony and they're doing all these interviews, I'm going. But what about me? What about me? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? But that's. So. But that's why. But that's also why I say. You know, that word of my epitaph has to have the word catalyst in it. Right. Exactly. Know? I'll put it in my podcast too. I'll put podcast or I'll put a catalyst at the very beginning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway. Thank you so much. I had so much fun. My, my pleasure, Dale. Anytime. I, I really th I thank you for reaching out to me. Um, and to anybody who's listening out there, keep rocking. Stay healthy and wear your masks, please. Please. It's not a political issue. Perfect. It's just a matter of respect for yourself and those around you. Absolutely. Thank you. DaleWileyShow.com.